As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 56, Fasting and Furious. In the last several episodes, we examined a variety of threats to the revolutionary project, from the renewed advance of the foreign foe to the emergence of civil war, the French Revolution seemed to be menaced on every front. But while dangers surrounded Paris, they could also be found within. Hunger and inflation gripped the capital, and the result was what some historians consider to be the first great crisis of 1793. With the emergence of a new ultra-radical movement, Paris was beset with unrest and the deputies of the convention found themselves in an increasingly precarious position. The people were fasting and furious, and the consequences would be great. The episode extra for this episode is titled The Red Priest, and we'll be exploring the origin story of the iconic Sankulot leader Jacques Roux. We'll be comparing how Roux and other leaders of the so-called enraged differed from previous leaders in the radical movements of Paris. One community member described it as gold earlier this morning, so take it from them, you don't want to miss it. As a reminder, this episode extra, along with tons of other great bonus content and perks, is available exclusively for the Patreon community. The members of Grey History are keeping this show on the air, and so if you're enjoying it, please do support the podcast for as little as $2 per regular episode. For the price of just half a cup of coffee, you can help promote history that isn't black and white and enjoy all the bonus content in the process. Just Google Grey History Patreon or follow the link in the show notes or on the website. For those patrons with early access, the Bastille Day special is waiting for you right now. All patrons have access to an accompanying behind-the-scenes video explaining this special episode focused on English reactions to the French Revolution, so do check it out. Now, before we get into it, I have some thank yous to make. Thank you to everyone who has been sharing the show with friends and family, promoting the podcast on social media, leaving reviews, making donations, and just helping out Grey History in some way, shape, or form. Also, a tremendous thank you to the patrons of the show, including the new faces which have joined the most amazing people in the world. And yes, I'm allowed to be biased. These people are literally keeping me fed, clothed, housed, and focused on bringing everyone more grey history more often. A warm welcome to the newest virtuous citizen, Marshin, and a thank you to Barbara, Pete T, and Peter M for increasing their pledges and becoming true revolutionaries. I hope you enjoyed early access to this episode a whole two weeks early, along with your current early access to the upcoming Bastille Day special. Of course, all revolutions need champions of the people, so a special thank you to Cynthia, George, Tim, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, Joel, Susan and Adam. Finally, a huge thank you to the extra generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff and Orga. Once again, Thank you to the patrons for making this show possible. Do check out the behind-the-scenes videos I uploaded earlier today and just give yourselves a pat on the back. You're what's making this show possible. Anyway, that's enough from me, so let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History, Episode 56, Fasting and Furious.
For many historians, there is only one word that can encapsulate March 1793. Crisis. It's easy to see why. Everywhere one looks, one sees calamities, disasters and existential threats. In the West, recruitment riots had morphed into rebellion and full-fledged civil war. In the East, foreign armies advanced unchecked, routing French forces and reconquering lands which had just been annexed to France. In all directions, new countries joined the counter-revolutionary crusade, and shockingly, the soldiers of tyranny were aided by traitors within. The list of crises is considerable. Du Maurier's betrayal, the civil war in the Vendée, the successful reclamation of Belgium by the Austrians, and the Rhineland by the Prussians. That's a substantial list right there. But with Spain and England entering the conflict, new fronts would soon emerge. Campaigns the revolutionaries were ill-prepared to fight. The war would now expand to the Pyrenees, the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, and all coastal regions vulnerable to the sudden arrival of the British Navy. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition, even more so when they arrive on a Protestant vessel. With so much to contend with, the revolutionaries grappled with one simple yet all-encompassing question. How was France to survive? That is a question for the next episode, because believe it or not, we have not finished exploring the existential threats which plagued the revolution in early 1793. In fact, we've missed two of the most important, and in many ways, these crises are familiar to us, both in terms of previous discussions as well as the issues which we are still grappling with right now in our own times. Before we can discuss the institutions of the terror, before we can unpack the fall of the Gironde, before we explore the rise of the mountain, we must talk about the crises affecting everyday people, and in particular, everyday Parisians. In order to understand the events of 1793, we must understand the crises of stomachs and wallets. Since April 1792, the war effort had had negative implications for the supply of food. Horses, wagons and of course manpower were requisitioned by the army, all diminishing the agricultural capabilities of the country. Furthermore, that army had to eat something, dramatically increasing the demand for food in certain regions of the nation. As a result of scarcity, bread riots occurred across France, and in the aftermath of the fall of the monarchy, concessions were made by the Legislative Assembly in order to minimise disorder. These concessions came in the form of legislation to try to prevent hoarding and speculation. But these new laws weren't worth the paper they were written on. The then Interior Minister Roland was a Girondin, and like many of his counterparts, Roland was committed to free market principles. This included the free and uninterrupted circulation of grain. Thus, despite the new laws of the Legislative Assembly, the minister did very little to actually intervene in the functioning of the market. In this, Roland was clearly supported by the National Convention, which replaced the Legislative Assembly just weeks later. The convention decided on the 8th of December 1792 to scrap the recently introduced laws. Instead, the body wholeheartedly embraced the most complete liberty in the trade of grain, and critically prescribed the death penalty for those encouraging bread riots or hindering grain's free circulation. However, it doesn't take a genius to figure out how this was received in the most radical and impoverished corners of Paris. Being given a lesson on why the invisible hand of the free market 
was really the best method to prevent their quite visible starvation was cold comfort to the people who were actually starving. To some citizens, it seemed that the best way to prevent empty stomachs was the opposite approach. The imposition of price controls and prevention of the export of grain to other regions was surely the superior policy. After all, cheap and plentiful food was clearly the solution to hunger, and such a solution should be imposed by force if necessary. Thus, disturbances relating to food and goods continued, with each department impacted differently depending on its own unique situation. In some circumstances, grain stores were broken into and pillaged, while in others, locals prevented food from being transported to neighbouring departments. Across France, merchants faced angry and violent customers, and were soon compelled to sell their wares at fair prices. And yes, I'm applying air quotes to the word fair. While its intensity varied from region to region, such unrest was becoming increasingly common. By the spring of 1793, disturbances relating to the distribution of grain, flour and other foodstuffs were on the rise, including in major urban centres like Lyon, Orléans and of course, Paris. Now, a want of food is generally problematic enough. Ask any parent, hospitality worker, or revolutionary government, and they'll all tell you that there's nothing worse than someone with an empty stomach and the means to complain about it. But this shortage of food was just part of the problem, and critically, it was exacerbated by a separate economic crisis, one that was far-reaching and seemingly inescapable. If you recall, Before we got talking about crusades for universal liberty, before we dissected the differences of active and passive citizens, even before we unpacked a declaration of the rights of man, the real origin of the French Revolution was the need to avoid an economic crisis. Specifically, the old regime needed to avert bankruptcy and the chaos which would ensue. Ironically, It was the court's efforts to avoid bankruptcy which ultimately gave birth to the revolution, a revolution far more radical than the reforms which occupied its nightmares. After the collapse of the old regime, the same problem was transferred to the National Assembly, and that body embarked on a radical solution to an age-old problem. In late 1789, the National Assembly decided to nationalise church property and use that property to issue a monetary instrument called assignats. These assignats were originally intended to be something akin to a bond, paying a small amount of interest to the holder. But the assignats quickly evolved into a form of paper currency, paying no interest at all and being issued in smaller, more everyday denominations. Driven partly by necessity, successive governments continued to issue assignats to meet their financial needs. The convention was no different, and by the start of 1793, inflation was set to exacerbate the lack of food supply. Printing money is inflationary at the best of times, but the coinciding military crisis meant that all this paper currency had a very real chance of becoming worthless overnight. If the Prussians took Paris, they weren't going to be honouring the revolution's bills, nor accept the revolution's currency. Perhaps more importantly, the church property theoretically underpinning the assignats wouldn't be available if the revolution was overturned. Not even divine intervention would prevent the Pope from attempting to take back the lands which he perceived to have been illegally stolen. In short, if you were holding assignats, you were taking a big bet that the revolution still existed in a year's time. Otherwise, you weren't holding money, you were holding toilet paper. So, this combination of money printing and risk to creditworthiness fueled the devaluation of the assignats. 
each day that more money was printed, and each day that the prospects of the revolution diminished, the value of the revolution's currency fell. This trend continued, especially as the war expanded to include England and Holland. After all, the increasing scope of the war reduced the probability that the revolution would survive. So it was only natural that the value of the revolution's currency reflected these developments. By June 1793, the purchasing power of the assignats fell to just 36% of its face value. Now, this devaluation was important for two reasons. Firstly, it meant that workers who were largely living hand-to-mouth were having to pay more and more for the food they needed to survive. If your currency was becoming increasingly worthless, you needed more of it to buy the same amount of goods as you had previously. Secondly, farmers were incentivized not to bring their food to market. Why sell goods for a paper currency that might be useless in six months' time? Better to just store your grain and sell it later, ideally for hard currency like gold, silver, or better yet, Bitcoin. The value of these currencies were far more dependable. On this second point, this issue was elaborated on by the deputy Saint-Just. The rising Montagnard star recognised the fact that the Arsignard's rapid devaluation was preventing farmers from supplying goods to market. As a result, he attempted to convince his colleagues that the printing of money needed to be stopped. Saint-Just addressed the convention as follows. Since what is wrong with our economy is the excessive numbers of assignats in circulation, we must ensure that their numbers are not allowed to increase, lest they depreciate apace. We must legislate so that as little money as possible is printed, but for that to be practicable, we must reduce the burden of charges falling on the national treasury, either by paying our creditors in land or by repaying our debts in annual instalments. In either event, it must be done without manufacturing additional paper money. Unfortunately for Saint-Just, turning on the money printer was just so easy. Thus, what we have here are two intertwined crises of hunger and economics spurred on by inflation and genuine food shortages. People can't buy goods with increasingly worthless paper currency, and farmers don't want to bring more goods to market to receive that increasingly worthless paper currency. With farmers supplying less goods, prices go up, contributing to inflation. Meanwhile, other developments diminish the purchasing power of the assignats also causing an inflation in prices. Before long, various elements of this problem are creating terrible synergies and amplifying the crises at hand. Eventually, the process becomes almost circular in nature, continually reinforcing inflation and the misery of the people. Now, that would be bad enough, but like an unwelcome television ad from the shopping channel, there's always more. Combine all of this with a drop in international trade from the entry of the British Navy into the war, along with the supply pressures caused to domestic production by the realities of the war effort, and what you have here is not just a recipe for hunger, but also a recipe for revolt. And it just so happens that you and I both know a city that loves a good revolt. It's here that we turn our attention back to an increasingly agitated Paris. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. After the establishment of the National Convention in September 1792, many of Paris's most radical sections and political societies sought to give the new government some space. It was understood that the new deputies needed time to actually get a hold of the various challenges facing France, and the radical cohorts, having been responsible for the convention's creation, certainly wanted it to succeed. But patience is always scarce, especially when bread is as well. Even as the city was enthralled by the king's trial, the issue of bread constantly arose. Amongst the city's most radical voices, new leaders were emerging, and these individuals were consistently tying economic and social issues to political ones. Links were drawn between the traitorous king and the scoundrels responsible for the nation's hunger. It wasn't just Louis who should be killed, but speculators, hoarders, and anyone else frustrating the supply of cheap and plentiful food. These rogues were attacking the people, and they should pay accordingly. Radicals redoubled their calls for the death penalty for hoarders and speculators, as well as price controls, the curtailment of property rights, and broad state intervention in the economy. As hunger increased throughout the winter of 1792-93, these crises became demands, and then these demands became actions. Violent actions. With the National Convention committed to embracing free market principles, Parisian radicals decided to take matters into their own hands. I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you that these radicals included the famous sans The vanguard of the revolutionary left, these men and women had been critical not only to the revolution's success, but also its growing radicalism. But it's been some months since we last focused on the radicals of Paris during the turbulent months of August and September 1792. Since the fall of the monarchy and the September massacres which followed, things have changed. As a result, if we're to truly understand the so-called soap and sugar riots, as well as the hugely consequential transformation of the relationship between the Sankulots and the Jacobins, we need to back up a bit. As a reminder, the term Sankulots literally means without breaches. In the 18th century, it was fashionable and common for men of high society to wear knee breeches. Breeches, like skinny jeans which succeeded them, were not the most practical of clothing choices for those who actually did something more than push paper for a living. Artisans, labourers, craftsmen, fishmongers and many such other professions of the third estate did not wear breeches. Put simply, the garment was neither practical nor necessary. So, the term sans was a term for, well, workers. It was a very broad term for people who in some way, shape or form laboured with their hands for a living. Now, you may recall that there is a fierce debate amongst historians about how one should view the sans and whether the group is a social category, a socio-economic class if you like, or if it's a political group. According to historian Timothy Tackett, 
The sunculottes were originally conceived as a social category, but in time, the term evolved from a social one to a social political one. Through this evolution, the term sunculottes became a catch all term for radical citizens who identified with the people. This popular front, as historian George Lefebvre puts it, consisted of both men and women who sought to push the radical agenda of the populist revolutionary left. It's because of this evolution of the term that one can find many examples of prominent sans-culottes who were not workers at all. In fact, far from it. No small number of sans-culottes were business owners, and a few prominent leaders were not just well-off, but wealthy. There are many examples of sans-culottes leaders with considerable business interests and personal wealth. But critically, they were still sans-culottes due to their political activities. Interestingly, many individuals who played prominent leadership roles in the city's clubs and sections came from what we would call middle-class backgrounds, with historian Timothy Tackett highlighting the prominent role of what he terms middle-class elites. The prominence of these men is understandable. They not only embraced popular politics, but many of them had been long-standing members of their communities, possessing both respect and authority as a result. Furthermore, with the benefit of wealth behind them, they could actually spend the time required to be more actively involved in local politics. In short, many of the first generation of Sankulot leaders were not necessarily the stereotypical poster boy of the Sankulot movement. They were not themselves workers, and instead, many were often well healed individuals, some of whom made a considerable fortune through the revolution by buying up all that church land that the authorities had seized and sold. It's thus not too much of a stretch to imagine them owning a secret pair of breeches in the closet at home. Damn, Albert, those legs are looking fine. Fashion aside, the introduction of universal male suffrage in mid-1792 changed everything. By removing the distinction between active and passive citizens, the gates were opened for even greater participation in the popular movement by individuals previously considered to be passive citizens. Suddenly, new possibilities arose for those with more working-class backgrounds, those who were far more comfortable in the streets than in the salons, for those individuals blessed with political talents and the ambition to use them, opportunity beckoned. However, the stage of political activism could only fit so many, and thus the competition was fierce. Aspiring leaders jockeyed with not only each other, but also the existing leadership of clubs and sections as each attempted to secure their place. In such a competitive and crowded environment, radicalization was a natural result. Seeking to win favour, and perhaps to just stand out, would-be leaders were naturally encouraged to radicalise their rhetoric. In a process similar to modern-day US politicians catering to the base of their political party during competitive primaries, these contestants were pushed further and further to the extremes. In times of war and hunger, in times of conspiracies and treason, moderation was a weakness, extremism an advantage. As such, over the course of late 1792 and early 1793, the political centre of revolutionary Paris shifted leftwards as revolutionaries radicalised. The policies discussed in the clubs, the press, the sections, and even the Commune of Paris all lurched to the left. Critically, calls for violence became increasingly common and normalised throughout this process. After all, death awaited the revolution should it fail to stop the foreign foe. Death was the result should the nation fail to discover the traitors within. Death was the literal outcome 
if the people continued to starve, if the revolution's supporters turned from citizens to corpses. With the stakes so high, with violence threatening the revolution's very existence in so many ways, surely the revolution could use violent means in response. Surely, it must. Historian Timothy Tackett asserts that such calls for violence resonated with lower middle-class males in particular, who he claims already had a penchant for violence preceding the revolution. Whether or not this is the case, it is clear that many Saint-Culottes responded favourably to this radical and violent rhetoric. Rhetoric which was noticeably divorced from the far more moderate words of the National Convention, and even the Montagnard deputies within it. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Grey History needs your help to stay on the air. For as little as the price of just half a cup of coffee, you can ensure that there's more Grey History waiting for you tomorrow. And with half a dozen bonus episodes, hours of episode extras, and a range of behind-the-scenes videos, there's more Grey History waiting for you right now. So sponsor the show today for as little as $2 per regular episode. I really need your support to keep the show going. So please, if you enjoy listening to Grey History, help me produce more of the podcast that you've come to love. It takes almost 50 hours to produce an episode, and I need your help to keep going. Just Google Grey History Patreon or click the link in the show notes or on the website. Support the revolution today. It was in this atmosphere that a new political force enters the revolutionary stage, the enragés. Translated into English, the enragés were the enraged. It also can be translated as the enraged ones or the furious, and you will also see the group and its like-minded associates loosely, and I stress loosely, labelled as the ultra-radicals. Sitting well to the left of the Jacobins, those associated with the ultra-radicals pushed, well, an ultra-radical and uncompromising agenda. Furthermore, prominent voices of this emerging political movement had no hesitation about using violence as a tool to achieve their goals. Now, it must be noted that when we're discussing the enraged, we must keep in mind that we're not talking about a political party. And in fact, we're not really even talking about a coherent political faction. Instead, this was a decentralised, almost grassroots movement of the radical left. According to historian Morris Slavin, no attempt was ever made to consolidate or unify their disparate forces. Neither was there an attempt to publish a joint journal or launch a common organisation. Slavin also claims that the leading figures would often repudiate and denounce each other, and when they did cooperate, it was usually a coincidence. What I want to convey here is that the enraged were nothing like the Jacobins or the Girondins in terms of their organisation. The Jacobins had their famous club, and a network of affiliate societies across France. Likewise, the Girondins infamously gathered in salons and homes to debate policy and coordinate tactics. 
both factions utilised the press to pursue their aims, and actively collaborated with like-minded individuals in both the capital and the departments. Prominent individuals associated with the enraged did none of these things. So, we must be careful not to overemphasise the coherence or unity of what was, essentially, a decentralised popular movement, one which was often centred on just a few sections of Paris. But, while the emerging leaders of the ultra-radical movement were not coordinating parliamentary manoeuvres or joint publications, they did share one thing in common. From a political, social and economic perspective, the enraged intended to remake society. Price controls were the start, not the end, of their transformational agenda. Believing the convention to be a combination of corrupt and ignorant, this new group of radical leaders attacked not only the Girondins, but also the Montagnards. To the enraged, the convention as a whole was insufficiently meeting the demands of the people. It was ignoring the needs of the sovereign nation. For the mountain in particular, this new challenge from their left represented a considerable threat. The Girondins had done a fantastic job at isolating themselves from the radical cohorts of Paris, and the support of those cohorts was critical to the mountain's influence and power as it battled with the Girondins. Should emerging leaders associated with the enraged supplant the mountain as the true champions of the people, the Jacobins could find themselves in a disastrous position. However, if the Montagnards found themselves in a dangerous situation politically, some residents of Paris found themselves in a dangerous situation literally. As the enraged escalated their calls for price controls, so too did their willingness to use violence. For the bakers and shopkeepers of Paris, saying no to demands for lower prices could be deadly. In fact, throughout February and March 1793, the violence relating to riots was so great that historian Albert Sebul describes the situation in Paris as the first component of the Great Revolutionary Crisis of 1793. The fact that this unrest can be compared to the military disasters in the East, to the civil war in the West, and even to the treason of de Maurier, gives you a sense of just how significant this problem became. So, now that we know the multiple hardships facing the Sankolots and why their leaders were increasingly radical, let's unpack how Paris found itself gripped by the so-called soap and sugar riots, and how the convention allowed the situation to get out of hand. Since the overthrow of the monarchy on the 10th of August and the September massacres which followed, the revolutionary cohorts of Paris had been relatively quiet. Not only did radical Parisians wish to see the convention succeed, but historian Jean Jaurès goes as far as to claim that the unquestionable authority of the new body essentially restrained others from taking the political initiative. But by mid-December, things had changed. In deeply troubling developments for the ultra-radicals of the revolutionary left, the convention had declared its adherence to free market principles. Rejecting the idea of price controls and aggressive intervention in the economy, deputies of all stripes had essentially rebuked the economic platform of the most radical sans-culottes. Equally worrying was the ongoing trial of the king. The trial, an unnecessary formality in the eyes of some, had first been inexplicably delayed and then subsequently had failed to deliver a prompt trip to the nation's razor. With inflation and food shortages inflicting considerable misery, the city's revolutionary cohorts began to mobilise. Their goal was simple. To pressure all layers of government into accepting radical economic, political and social reforms. 
The pressure campaign, which ensued, commenced before the year was over. On the 30th of December, delegates from 18 of the city's sections lobbied the convention to hurry up with the king's execution. It had already been nearly five months since the monarchy's downfall, and now Girondin deputies had outrageously proposed the appeal to the people just days before. The suggestion of a national referendum to determine the king's fate was a deeply disturbing development. The situation required death, not delay, and thus the representatives of the city's most radical sections were having none of the Girondin proposals. To underscore their point, the delegation was joined by wounded victims of the 10th of August, visible reminders of the accused's treachery. In the early months of 1793, delegations and petitions increased in frequency, severity, and scope. On January the 13th, a delegation of all of Paris's 48 sections demanded that the convention implement considerable monetary reforms. These reforms included the compulsory acceptance of the assignats and a prohibition on exchanging the paper currency for gold or silver coins. Both measures were an attempt to stabilise the paper currency's ongoing devaluation, and its value would continue to fall as the military crises of 1793 piled up. Not to be left out of the party, delegations representing federés joined the pressure campaign. The federés, aka volunteers from all over France, had been critical to overthrowing the monarchy in August. Five months later, new enthusiasts were equally committed to securing the safety of the revolution, and they lent their support to demands to prevent speculation in assignats. But for all the fixation on paper currency, what really mattered here was the relative cost and availability of basic necessities. In addition to bread, items such as soap, firewood and sugar were all increasing in price as a multitude of factors reduced supply and fueled inflation. Price maximums had always been the most iconic policy of the emerging ultra-radical movement, and thanks to the so-called enraged ones, the issue of price controls returned to the political foreground in February. On February the 12th, less than two weeks after England's entry into the war, and just days before de Maurier's ill-fated invasion of the Dutch Republic, a new deputation was heard in the convention. Here again, representatives of the city's sections demanded price controls, and they did so with force. As you hear the next quote, imagine the reaction of the nation's representatives as they were presented with such assertive demands from the city sections of Paris. Citizen legislators, it is not enough to have declared that we are French Republicans. The people must also be happy. There must be bread. For where there is no bread, there can be no laws, no liberty, no republic any longer. We have come, without fear of displeasing you, to cast light on your errors and show you the truth. You have been told that a just law on staple provisions is impossible. That would be to say that it is impossible to govern states once tyrants are overthrown. No, a just law is not impossible. We have come to you to propose one, and no doubt you will hasten to adopt it. Hasten to adopt it, the convention did not. In principle, the body had no interest in the interventionist policies demanded by the city's radical sections. After all, the convention had only just re-embraced the ideas of free market economics when they re-liberalised the grain trade in December. Two months later, the deputies were hardly about to change course. Placing policy differences aside, the nation's representatives were 
enraged by the actions of the section's deputation. Horrified by both the nature of the demands and the almost menacing manner in which they were delivered, the petitioners triggered the wrath of the convention's representatives. Deputies across the chamber were particularly incensed when one petitioner claimed to represent the will of all of the departments. A Girondin deputy angrily asked, are there two conventions in France, two national representations? Even the people's friend Marat had seen enough. The famously radical Montagnard deputy condemned the delegation's proposals as excessive and outlandish, which, to be frank, is really saying something when Marat uses the terms excessive and outlandish. On the deputation's demands, Marat stated, The measures that have just been put to you at the bar are so excessive, so strange, so subversive of all good order, they tend so plainly to destroy the free circulation of grain and excite unrest in the Republic, that I am amazed they should have come from the mouths of men who claim to be reasonable beings and free citizens, friends of justice and peace. I demand that those who have imposed on the convention in this way be prosecuted as disturbers of the public peace. Little did Marat know that the public peace was about to be disturbed. If the convention would not listen to the will of the people, alternative paths would be pursued. As had happened previously when issues of hunger imperiled the people of Paris, working-class women took a leading role. On the 22nd of February, 1793, two weeks after the controversial petition, a group of women sought to discuss the issues confronting them at the Parisian Jacobin Club. The Jacobins said no. Having been rebuffed, the club's leadership were assailed, booed, hissed and accused of being in league with merchants and speculators. You could be forgiven for thinking that the crowd was denouncing the Girondins, not the Jacobins. Charged with growing rich from public destitution, some Montagnard leaders were even obliged to seek shelter, and the session was hastily adjourned. Two days later, on the 24th, laundry women visited the convention to demand price maximums on soap and other basic goods. Embracing the violent rhetoric which increasingly characterized the language of those associated with the enraged, the women made their demands clear. To the people, bread. To the people's enemies, death. Legislators, you made the head of the tyrant fall beneath the sword. Let the sword of the laws come down on the heads of these public leeches. These men, who constantly call themselves friends of the people, but who caress the people only the better to smother them. Despite warnings that the people were being killed by these public leeches, the convention continued to do nothing. The Girondin deputies were always loathed to infringe on property rights and interfere with the free market, but these sympathies were shared by many members of both the plain and the mountain. Liberalising internal trade, winning the war, and identifying seditious conspiracies would be sufficient to rectify the problem. Price controls and draconian legislation would only make matters worse. In the short term, however, inaction would make matters worse. The following day, Parisians, led by working women, began a considerable riot. Shops of all sizes were raided and looted, while shopkeepers, unfortunate enough to not be working from home, were compelled to sell goods at so-called reasonable prices. Soap, sugar, candles, bread, and really any basic necessity was fair game 
as pillaging broke out in certain districts of the city. The Revolution de Paris claimed that the extent of the lawlessness was considerable. The publication described the scenes as extraordinary and noted that even the smallest shop was treated like the biggest warehouse. At first, the new Parisian mayor, the former war minister Pache, yes, Pache, the same war minister who bitterly feuded with both Roland and de Maurier in previous months, well, he was just days into the new job. As such, the ill-prepared authorities proved powerless to stop the commotion. It wasn't until the next day that the National Guard was deployed in significant numbers, swiftly ending the disturbances with the threat of force. Again, the convention was united in its denunciation of the emerging ultra-radical movement, and one prominent leader in particular, a former priest named Jacques Roux. The fascinating story of Roux and his evolution from priest to revolutionary is the focus of the episode extra for this episode. Considering Roux's future prominence as a thorn in the side of the Jacobins, it's not an episode extra you want to miss. As a reminder, if you're a fan of Grey History, I really need your support to keep the show going, and there's plenty of great bonus content waiting for you as part of joining the Grey History community. But in the atmosphere of 1793, every event, every occurrence, was permeated and corrupted by two things. Firstly, an incessant belief in conspiracies, and secondly, the factional feud between the Girondins and the Mountain. While both condemned the actions of the rioters, they soon accused the other of being responsible. The Jacobins, including Robespierre, accused the Girondins of the Executive Council of ineffectively dealing with the return of some French émigrés. According to the Jacobin talking points, it was these returning priests and nobles who were the true instigators of the riots. In accusations which can only be considered laughable, some allies of the mountain even claimed that the rioters were themselves émigrés who had disguised themselves as sans-culottes. More plausible, but by no means clear, were Girondin accusations against the Jacobins, specifically Marat. Marat was accused of encouraging the disorders through the distribution of an inflammatory publication on the day of the riot. But some historians doubt its contribution to the unrest due to the timing of the riots compared to when the article actually hit the streets. Whatever the case may be, both factions of the convention were equally swift in both denouncing the actions of the people as well as accusing the other of being responsible for said actions. Historian Michael Sydenham notes that neither side gained any advantage in this blame game, for the convention as a whole was increasingly unpopular in Paris. But before we move on to the monumental consequences that come from these events, I do want to discuss one last aspect of what historians make of all of this. Interestingly, academics themselves are divided over the issue of who is responsible and some are completely disinterested in this Girondin-Jacobin blame game. Historians Jean Jaurès and Albert Metti place responsibility for the riots on the enraged, the emerging ultra-radical movement sitting well to the left of the mountain. After all, prominent radicals had been organising petitions and delegations for months. Furthermore, they had been consistently calling for violent measures in their quest to introduce price controls. The nascent leaders of the ultra-radicals had demanded drastic means to avoid starvation and disrupt the power of the sinister elites. Were the riots not the natural endpoint of their radical and uncompromising agenda? Other historians, including historians of similar ideological dispositions, disagree. Both Jarez and Mati were left-leaning historians, as is historian Eric Hazen. But Hazen strongly rejects the idea that those associated with the enraged played any leading role in the riots. While acknowledging they played 
a role. Hazen argues that the enraged were neither a party, nor even really a faction, and thus to claim that they were the ringleaders of some planned demonstration overemphasizes the coherence and organization of the loosely affiliated radicals. This debate, of course, touches on what we were discussing earlier, where historian Morris Slavin emphasized the lack of cohesion and unity within the forces of the enraged. Hazen is essentially agreeing with this premise and using it to argue against holding prominent members of the enraged as accountable for the riots of February 1793. Whatever the case may be, the policy positions of the ultra-radicals were becoming increasingly popular. Furthermore, those individuals, such as Jacques Roux, who championed those policies, represented a threat. That threat was both to the National Convention as an institution, as well as to the individual factions which wished to control it. And here we get to the crux of the issue. This emerging movement, the so-called enraged, represented a grave danger to both the Girondins and the Montagnards. For the Girondins, the ultra-radicals could be the instigators of their demise. Angered by the inaction of the convention, the revolutionary left openly demanded that the traitorous Girondins be purged from the government. This demand was far from a hypothetical. It was more than possible that a new popular movement, a new 10th of August, could force the convention to expel the Girondin deputies. Just months prior, a small group of committed revolutionaries had overthrown the monarchy. Now, such a group might overthrow the deputies who had attempted to save the monarch. Far more importantly, however, was the risk posed to the mountain. The Jacobins' strength in their feud with the Girondins had been the people of Paris. The power of the city's radical cohorts was undeniable. It was the people who had stormed the Bastille. It was the people who had toppled the monarchy. And it was the people who had volunteered to fight in times of dire need. Throughout the second half of 1792, the Montagnards had cleverly positioned themselves alongside the people. Specifically, the city's politically active Saint-Culottes. The Jacobins had stylized themselves as their champions in the convention, and they had been rewarded as a result. But, the emerging ultra-radical movement threatened this position. In an environment where people were starving and disillusioned, the mountain increasingly failed to demonstrate its commitment to the people of Paris. Instead of price controls and aggressive measures against speculators, the mountain had sided with the Girondins in advocating free market economics. In such circumstances, it appeared that the true champions of the people were not the Jacobins at all. Perhaps it was the emerging leaders of the ultra-radicals. After all, it was the so-called enraged ones who demanded not just the economic, but the social and political measures required to secure the welfare of the nation. It was they who vigorously pursued policies designed to ensure the well-being of the people. It was they who demanded the reinstatement of the Revolutionary Tribunal. It was they who called for the purge of the Girondins. It was they who demanded price controls, market interventions, and violent measures against any and all enemies of the Republic, domestic and foreign. This is where the mountain was vulnerable. With each passing day, more and more of the city's sans-culottes were becoming disillusioned with the Jacobin Club and supportive of the radicals to its left. Jacobin leadership were increasingly booed, hissed and denounced as they seemed to support merchants, the elites and others who were not truly one with the nation. With each day that the convention seemingly did nothing to support the people, these attitudes became further entrenched. And it's easy to see why. Ask yourself this. If you were a washwoman who couldn't afford bread, 
couldn't afford soap, couldn't afford not only the necessities for your life, but those of your children's as well, who do you think you would perceive to be the true champions of the people? Who do you think would represent your interests? The men in the convention protecting the rights and liberties of merchants, or the men in the streets protecting the rights and liberties of everyday citizens? Historian Patrice Higginett describes the enraged as the most authentic leaders of the Parisian poor, and this perspective was increasingly held by Parisians themselves. With the growing power of the ultra-radicals, the Jacobins were in danger of being usurped as the primary voice of the revolutionary left. Furthermore, they were in danger of being replaced as the standard-bearers of the Parisian sans-culottes, the group which were so critical to their political power. Thus, this development was nothing short of an existential threat. This risk to the mountain is captured well by historian Marisa Linton. Linton notes the rising hostility towards prominent members of the Jacobins and the increasing denunciations they received for the disconnect between their previous posturing and their current policies. Linton writes, The sections and popular societies were beside themselves with anger at the continuing food shortages and were ready to turn on Jacobin deputies too if their private conduct did not tally with their public utterances. It was particularly injudicious to be seen to be eating well while the people were hungry. Not even the leading Jacobins were immune from this kind of criticism. On 12 February, Saint-Just was embarrassed by a petition from the sections of Paris that singled him out as a bon voyeur, living a life at odds with his public persona. Now quoting the delegation, People know that in the popular assemblies, the orators who harangue and deliver the finest discourses and the best lessons dine well every day. Of this number is the citizen Saint-Just. Lift high the odious mask which he covers himself. Tapping into a political environment characterised by suspicion and distrust, this denunciation of Saint-Just was not unique. As historian Linton notes, the sections and popular societies of Paris were ready to turn on the Jacobins should they fail to change course. Wedged between the Girondins to their right and the emerging ultra-radicals to their left, the mountain was in a dangerous and untenable position. So too, for that matter, was the revolution itself. Surrounded by enemies on all fronts, the hungry capital was increasingly disunited, ill-prepared for the challenges that lay ahead. The people were fasting and furious. The revolution was in crisis, and the Jacobins would need to do something drastic if they wished to survive. Thank you for listening to episode 56, Fasting and Furious. The episode extra for this episode is titled The Red Priest, and it explores the background of the prominent ultra-radical Jacques Roux. It also unpacks how Roux differs to some of those middle-class elites which historian Timothy Tackett claims initially played such a large role in the leadership of Paris's radical clubs and sections. The next episode will be a Bastille Day special, an episode which I created on behalf of another history podcast. Your clue for the topic is the word reflections, and patrons currently have access to the behind-the-scenes video detailing how that came about. Patrons with early access can listen to the full episode right now. In the next main episode, we'll see how the mountain confronts the challenge to its authority from the revolutionary left. We'll also explore how the convention responds to the multiple crises of 1793, including the creation of the institutions which will enable the reign of terror. As always, thank you so much to the patrons who support the show and keep Grey History on the air. If you're enjoying Grey History, if you want more Grey History, 
then join the community on Patreon today. There's hours of bonus content waiting for you right now and a range of other perks such as an ad-free version of the show. For the price of just half a cup of coffee, secure yourself more grey history and enjoy all the benefits of being in the most amazing community in history podcasting. Another warm welcome to the newest patrons of the show and a special call out again to the exceptionally generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff and Orga. As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe. Please share the show with friends and family and have a great day. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.